3: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up
2: slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's slash upgrade.
1: Just before we start today's show, I should tell you about our new sponsor. It's going to be our sponsor for the next couple of months here on Mid-Atlantic. It's Flick. And what Flick do is they have an app. And it allows you, the listener, to chat with other listeners of this podcast. Quite simply to go and download this app to your smartphone, go onto the show notes of this episode, you'll see a link, click on that link, it will then download an app to your phone, which then connects you to the world of Mid-Atlantic listeners. Now, not only can you chat, create your own topics and respond to uh, people's comments about us and uk politics we can also listen to the show so it basically acts as an an app for the podcast so go on to the show notes download the flick app and enjoy Hello and welcome to The Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Now, folks, I'm about to hit the gym and to restrict my calorific input in a battle to get slim before Xmas, because we all know what happens at Christmas. You put it all back on again. And I'm Royfield Brown, and I'm in Oakland. Now, today I'm joined by a friend of the show, Karen Robinson, from the Primarily 2020 podcast. Now, you're somewhere in London. Uh, where are you I- exactly?
5: I'm in Northeast London. I'm in Walthamstow, the oh. Stow, Awesome Stow, as people like to call it. <laughs> Absolutely. And- apologies i've got i've got my daughter screaming downstairs hang on i'm so sorry i'm just gonna go see what's going on but that, everyone that's
1: all right right. i think listeners like the veil to be lifted and there to be um, (laughs) domestic sounds off mic so to speak makes it makes you seem human and not like some kind of robot pundit so it's all good
5: my daughter had finished her book and wanted a new one (laughs) all right well at
6: least she's a reader
1: Well, that that that's a good thing, very much a good thing, and she's got a voracious appetite for books, which you know, to be applauded in one so young. We've done the one half of our pundit team this week. Now it's time for us to do the other. It's the woman who nearly bumped us for Sky News, Emma Burnell, who's also just (laughs) they got bumped herself. But you know what? I'll always have you though, love. There you. you go. Bless you. There you go. Say hello, folks. Hello. Hello. In a week that has seen political eruptions in Washington and London, we ask, will this be seen as one of the most momentous weeks in politics on both sides of the Atlantic? But before we go on to that, answer from both of our pundits. In a change to our regular format, folks, we have some listener calls. I've been asking you the last couple of shows to call in, give us your feedback, to create somewhat of a community of listeners where you can actually hear people's thoughts and feelings. Now, first, we have Steve,
3: who's in Buffalo. Hi, my question is about why is the courts and the public so obsessed with what Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin did, and they're completely ignoring the utterly corrupt system that has caused this particularly the universities and the college admissions who also helped cook the books and took the bribes why are we completely ignoring that i'm definitely interested in what you think thanks
1: karen you're our resident yank um (laughs) i think this is more in your purview over to you
5: yeah, it's a, it's a great question, um, to which I have two responses. One is it's kind of obvious that celebrities are just interesting. Um, that's why they're celebrities. Um, so it's not surprising perhaps that Hollywood celebrities behaving so spectacularly badly in such a kind of, stereotypically uh, screen villain way um, attracts people's interest. I think it's a very good point to look at the wrongdoing on the part of the institutions. But actually, my um, deeper problem with this whole thing, um, my husband works in higher education, I know a little bit about the higher education system in America. And there is a much bigger scandal, um, which is what's legal and permitted and kind of just accepted by everyone, which is that there is already in place a massive structural advantage given to the children of the wealthy in the form of legacy admissions. Um, Mm. Roughly 41% of all kind of Ivy League admissions come from people whose parents went to those schools. Um, There's a preferential kind of affirmative action for um, existing wealthy elite families with heritage in those universities, which, obviously has a massively, um, disadvantage to minorities and kind of just ordinary people who don't happen to come from Harvard family. So, um, and that's just kind of normal and just accept it as, as common by everyone. And even by people who, who will argue vigorously about, um, trying to get rid of affirmative action, um, aren't granted to minorities, they they seem very unwilling to turn the fire of their righteous indignation on the to me much graver threat, which is the significant proportion of our Ivy Leagues, which are set aside for the children of the elite um, right up front. So you know, I'm you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a burn it all down type on this issue. It it, it infuriates me.
6: I think in terms of why they're not being covered so much, the courts only respond to what gets taken through um, legal channels. Um A lot of that will be to, to do with what gets noticed in, and why the public don't care is because the media don't care. And that's not because the media don't care when something big happens. But when long-term systemic things go wrong, that's generally not a story until it just completely blows up. So this has mm. been the explosion point of long-term systemic problems, of which the stuff that Karen was talking about is a graver part that has not and will not be covered because it's a, you know, it's a boiling frog rather than an an exploding volcano. Mm.
1: And I think also on a very kind of like personal point of view, many people in the media establishment, political establishment have actually benefited from that affirmative action to do with the elites. So they're actually complicit and in supporting the system in that way. And, And it doesn't half get rammed home to me all the time, that if you have a financial advantage, it's not affirmative action, it's an entitlement, you are entitled to this, whether it's a tax cut, whether it is a leg up, into an, an educational establishment, but if somebody is not part of that, or a group of people are not part of that, then it's seen as affirmative action, and you are trying to help them, and then that is anti-American, etc., etc. People should get there by the sweat of their own brow, now, not because there's any kind of quotas and stuff. But I, I, I must—I find the whole U.S. educational system somewhat arcane and impenetrable from, from a British perspective to understand, and that's before I, I talk about college sports and the fact that I can go walk into any bar and see these young men running up and down, uh, throw, uh, hurtling themselves at each other, inflicting <laughs> grave damage on their bodies. It's a billion dollar industry and they don't get a penny.
5: Oh, Royfield, don't get me started on that. That'll be all day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, maybe maybe we'll come back to that on another show. But here is another call from the other side of the Atlantic, and this is Luke.
0: Hi, uh, my name's uh, Luke, and um, I just wanted to pick up something that uh, Emma was talking about in the last show. Because as the uh, father of a girl with epilepsy, I really shared her outrage at the way Jacob Rees-Mogg dismissed David Nicholls' warning about the uh, uh, threat to the medical supply chain in a no-deal Brexit scenario. David Nicholl specifically mentioned the threat to epilepsy medicine. Boris Johnson doesn't really believe in a no-deal Brexit, I think, mainly because he doesn't really believe in anything very much. But Rhys Mogg and his mob do believe. No deal would create the kind of chaos that this kind of disaster capitalist sees as a field of opportunity. Stripping the state bare and burning red tape is what they're all about. Rhys fellow traveller, Kwasi Kwarteng, said something along the same lines when he was asked by the father of a girl with type 1 diabetes whether No Deal Brexit would risk his daughter not receiving her life-saving medicine. He said it was a risk worth taking. Amazing. No Deal will allow these people's dream to come true. I certainly don't want to live in a society conceived by this kind of callousness. Uh, thanks to Royfield and uh, all your guests. Really enjoy the show. Uh,
1: Emma, that was well, more of a statement than a question per se, but thoughts and feelings considering your name was in tone at the start.
6: Well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think we've seen a dialing down of callousness this week. Um, so it does. it just feels like there are two different types of callous happening. Firstly, political strategist callousness, which is we believe that appealing to the worst instincts of the electorate and focus grouping the hell out of phrases like surrender act, um, calling it betrayal, treachery, etc., um, will get us re-elected uh, and damn the consequences.
4: Mm.
6: And secondly, the believer callousness um, of people like you know the the quoted their quasi quasi Is something being worth it for what I want? I will see children with epilepsy go without medicine. Um, yeah, you know, that I don't know which frightens me more actually, because the second at least has some some ideology behind it. The latter the, is sorry, the former is just burn it all down simply for the sake of power. And I don't, I honestly don't know which is more dangerous.
1: Mm. Yeah. The whole thing about ideological, ideological purity uh, is what I mm. get from this kind of like burn it down notion that it will, will all be worth it in the end, whatever yeah. pain we go through. And you can only afford to go through that pain if you have the financial mm. wherefor all to sustain it. Yeah. You know, these guys have nothing on the line. Uh, if there is, as economists tell us, uh, some kind of economic downturn, you know, they're not going to yeah. lose their jobs at all. You know, so they're all right, Jack. So hence, they can be ideologically poor, pure. Sorry, in in that regard, uh, there is one other call which is directed at me, and it goes back to an episode I did some time ago uh, with an educated Trump supporter. Here is Sasha from down under.
3: My name's Sasha. I'm an Australian-based listener to your podcast. founded a few months ago. Really enjoy it. Really enjoy the views you express and the issues you canvass with your um, panel of uh, experts. I'm not happy with episode 4.13, though. I think it was a wasted opportunity. Uh, I think uh, I certainly, and I think most of your listeners already know that uh, Trump is vile and that his ideas are awful, but I think there are a loss of highly intelligent, articulate, educated Americans out there such as David, who believe themselves not to be racist and find that they're able to support Trump despite all the vile and horrible things he says and enables. And I would like to know why. I think that would be really useful to know. Uh, Instead of drawing out David's views, what you mainly did was cut him off and tell him how wrong he was. Okay? And to tar him for all of Trump supporters' views. I never expected that you would support his views or leave them unchallenged but i did hope you'd let him express them so we could at least get an idea of why he believes the things he says because that makes it easier for us to understand and combat uh uh, uh, these kinds of these kinds of values so i think it was a cathartic but a wasted opportunity anyway love the show
1: sasha thank you for your contribution i think my definitely my interview style is to be very much conversational as opposed to confrontational. So the fact that you thought I was kind of cutting him off um, somewhat does surprise me. But the one thing which I do do is I don't necessarily have a start well, I always have a start. I don't necessarily have a middle and an end in terms of the conversations when I do the shows where I just speak to one person and one person alone. They're very unstructured as opposed to the, the regular shows where there are two pundits. So I can somewhat drift off. And you are t- you, if anything, I'm learning from your call is to say that I should be more, more disciplined. I would say, though, however, that David did say many things, um, which is the reason why he's a Trump supporter, he talked about small-town America. He talked about rural America being left behind um, by big city, metropolitan, elite America, bearing in mind that he's somebody high up in academia. I thought it was somewhat interesting that um, he didn't see himself as being part of the elite. But he did talk about middle American values, and that's the reason why he could still vote with Trump. He did say that, and I did somewhat draw that out of him. But anyway, your opinion is as valid as mine, sir. But even though you thought it was somewhat of a wasted exercise, you're still going to listen to the show. So I thank you for persevering. And you did send me an email this week um, saying that you still are a listener. So I thank you. Now, folks, quite simply, if you want to pose a question to us, you can go on to midatlanticshow.com. There's a little red tab over on the right-hand side. It's called Speak Pipe. Hit that and you can pose a question. You've got two minutes of which you can bloviate. Uh, you can argue what Emma has said or agree with what Karen has said or just... <laughs> generally praise <laughs> me so that why don't you Roy go hit when i got the tab. best
6: end of that <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we will.
6: <laughs> we can argue with
5: them, agree with Warfield, or praise me. I'm I'm okay with that breakdown. <laughs> praise can
1: me. <laughs> so go and hit that red tab over on. Can I just show. add a little a postscript to that, which is to say views. that it's great go. to
6: hear from listeners, but let's have a diversity. So some some female voices would also be very welcome, even if they're disagreeing with me.
1: I, I tell you what, I was waiting. For somebody to say that, but the one thing which absolutely I was re- was really marked for me in those three calls: one was Australia, mm. one was the UK and one was the u s so people ask me all the time um, what is the the breakdown of listeners to the show, and I always go it 's slightly more British than American, but actually I forget to count all the other mm. English speaking territories that actually do listen to the show so I think Australia is the third biggest listenership that we have then Canada etc etc hello so, to my Australian yes, friends have, uh, if anyone's
6: in Fremantle say hello to my brother <laughs> hi Emma's brother <laughs> I'm not in Fremantle but I still want
1: to say hi Emma's <laughs> brother can we stop the family shout outs and now start with the show yeah
2: okay <laughs> hi mom all right. Pam let me go to you first You have seen the log. What does it say? All right. Well, this is five page transcript. It appears to be a nearly complete transcript of the July call, Poppy, where President Trump asked Ukrainian President Zelensky several times to collaborate with Attorney General Barr and his attorney, uh, Rudy Giuliani, to look into Biden and his son, Hunter. Now, after pleasantries were exchanged, President Trump starts off the conversation telling the Ukrainian leader about how much help the U.S. has offered to Ukraine in comparison to European countries. Now, he doesn't specifically mention military aid, but says the U.S. has been, quote, very, very good to Ukraine. So not an explicit quid pro quo, but the president was clearly teeing up his requests to Ukraine. So after that exchange about U.S. help to Ukraine, Trump then says, I would like you to do us a favor. He asked Ukraine to look into its role in the 2016 election, where he claimed without evidence that Ukraine has the DNC server. And on Biden, he then mentioned Biden on page four. He says, there's a lot of talk about Biden and his son, and a lot of people wanna find out if Biden stopped the prosecution of a company tied to his son. Now we should note, there is not direct evidence to support this allegation that the president made in the call. It's also important to take a step back here. This is just one part of the whistleblower complaint surrounding President Trump. It is not the full picture. The White House is preparing to release that complaint to Congress. We were told that that could actually happen today.
1: The White House has released details of a telephone call between President Trump and the Ukrainian president that has triggered a U.S. impeachment inquiry. Is this transcript the smoking gun that Democrats need to impeach Trump? Over to you, Karen Shoot.
5: Well, I mean an impeachment inquiry is beginning. Um I think reports are that we now have enough Democrats, enough well enough members of Congress, um all of them happen to be Democrats who support an impeachment inquiry um uh, that that an impeachment would pass if it were brought to a vote. Um let's let's be clear about the details of of the gist of what's what's transpired here. I was going to say alleged death happened, but what happened? I mean nobody is denying at this point the chain of events. Um Donald Trump was has been pressuring the Ukrainian president from pretty much the moment he was elected. We have recently found out in the whistleblower complaint today that um, uh, in the congratulatory phone call, the very first phone call he had with the president, he raised this issue um, and asked him to go away and look at it. This is now the second call that we have the transcript from. Um, and what he specifically asked this man to do was to investigate um, the Biden family, it was Hunter Biden's so Joe Biden's sons' um, activities in Ukraine. He Joe Biden had requested the that the previous prosecutor in ukraine um who was widely seen as corrupt um and who had been called his his resignation had been called for by the imf by most of the western governments and by president obama president obama sent joe biden uh to delegate to the ukraine saying that they thought this this prosecutor was corrupt he was not pursuing investigations um and so they asked for him to be fired he was in fact eventually fired by the um by the Ukrainian Senate effectively. Um, and that, that, that was a thing that happened, which was completely above board. Um, Donald Trump, because he's a conspiracy theorist and always has been, um, has convinced himself that there's something shady going on here because Hunter Biden worked for a company in Ukraine. And he's been pushing, pushing, pushing. Nobody's been able to find any evidence of wrongdoing. But he made it clear in that transcript of the call and in his other conversations with the the Ukrainian president that he was going to, in fact, he withheld military funds that had been granted by Congress to Ukraine until the Ukrainian president agreed to pursue this investigation. Um, So there's all kinds of potential crimes here. There's, first of all, using the power of American foreign policy to directly personally benefit you. There's a campaign finance law violation there. Paul Manafort is currently in jail for a similar type of crime. Um, There are um, there are certainly kind of bribery allegations. There are, there is the failure to turn over this whistleblower report. So the whistleblower, then um, somebody who works in the foreign service, was privy to this information, was deeply concerned about it issued a um a, war, a red flag effectively um sent a letter saying i'm deeply concerned about this under federal whistleblower protection laws um, and that was then not submitted to congress as it's required to be by law so that's a that's law breaking in and of itself it just the more we find out about it the worse this becomes and i think the bottom line is democrats got to a point where we were like This is not about politics anymore. This is about national security, and it's about protecting the integrity of the American system. Um, both the political process, because he's trying to intervene in an election, but also that the, the president cannot have unfettered power to use American foreign policy and congressional aid as a personal bribery tool. We just have to say no, let the chips fall what they may. It's like, let justice be done though the skies fall. This is enough. And that, that kind of was the mood of the Democrats. Um, the Democrats, there were seven, Democrats described as national security Democrats who are moderates, um, who um, work, who are mostly from Trump supporting districts or swing districts. Anyway, they published an op ed saying enough, basically saying what I just said. This is a national security problem. We can't allow this to go on.
1: You know what this is? That was a, a masterful summing up of exactly where we are today. But the one thing I'd slightly take to task about is saying this is not about politics. Uh, Pelosi historically has been a keen judge of the political mood of the nation and her party. She's made the decision to shift from resisting impeachment to at least saying, let's have an inquiry about it. This is politics, isn't it? Trump is at the low 40s. She said this is a a historically weak president in terms of approval ratings, I think we can go for it now, and saying that she's going to, you know, it's an inquiry is a a way of testing the water, isn't it? We're going to know much more clearly on Monday after all the Sundays, uh, the talk shows on the Sundays, how much the Republican Party is going to turn on him, aren't we? Well, I don't
5: think. Yeah, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is necessarily watching the Sundays. I don't think that's what she's making her decision on. No, no, no. What no, she'll but- be watching, what she's watching for is the polls, um, if you're being really, mm-hmm. really concrete about it. Because right now – like so, until this happens so fast, right? This have this all happened in the space of a week. I mean, it's head spinning in in Washington terms. This is lightning speed. We went from knowing very little about, you know, kind of rumors that there was a whistleblower, or something had happened, to to now we're in an impeachment inquiry. We haven't had time to catch up with the opinion polls, so we don't know what people think about this at the moment. So Nancy Pelosi is slightly flying in the dark previous to that public opinion polls on impeachment had been very negative there was a big gap between donald trump's approval rating was as you say is about 40 42% but only about you know 20% fewer people think that think that he should be impeached so there's a gap so what we would expect to happen as as you know this is how public opinion tends to work there's usually elite signaling right so when as as has now happened, when the party moves in unanimity, what usually happens is that party supporters then take that as a signal of, okay, this is now acceptable public discourse and, and public mm-hmm. opinion changes. The interesting thing, what Nancy Pelosi will be watching is, does it stop there? Or do independent voters also find themselves convinced? I think, you know, you're absolutely right. It's ultimately a political judgment. Impeachment is a political process, but it is the, also the only process that we have to hold the president to account by any means. There's been a judgment that the president can't be prosecuted; that um, you know they've been stymieing and stonewalling every attempt to investigate. We haven't seen his tax returns. All that's left is impeachment, and we we f- we fired the gun, the only uh, the only bullet we had in the trigger in the chamber. That's a <laughs> horrible analogy i take it back i'll choose a dentler analogy <laughs> it's all we had and um you know, we had to make we had to draw a line and so we drew it
1: all right line has been drawn emma uh the white house transcripts that were released do we believe that they're the verbatim conversation that trump had um, there seems to be
6: like a lim- limited version of them um <laughs> kind of like the bar memo version of them um but even then, they were pretty damning. Um, and Trump's own tweets are pretty damning. You know, Trump's own tweets say, yeah, I totally did this. <laughs> What's the problem, guys? It's all fine. Politics, la, la, la. I'm the most most terribly treated president who's ever been in office, despite um, several previous presidents having been assassinated. Um, one would think they probably got treated slightly worse. Um, you know, it, Trump breaks the law in absolute sunlight and that's almost his strategy is just you know it doesn't matter because he's only tweeting it yeah. um and i think that's a real danger because mm. if he, he, he yeah you know, there's that old phrase isn't there when someone tells you who are they who they are believe them but we keep sort of going oh no you know Take him truthfully, not literally, and all of this nonsense, and it's just a nonsense. You know, the guy is just, you know, feels that he's above the law and is being proved right. I mean, I think, mm. I think it's the psychology
5: of Donald Trump is is not a place that I enjoy spending yeah. my time, but it's where we all live now. So let's let's take a trip into the headspace <laughs> of Donald Trump. <laughs> we have watched <laughs> way too much World, lady. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry you're on to me. I mean basically in Donald Trump's head, you say he breaks the law as easy as breathing. It's true, but to me, mm. it's because he makes no distinction. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't conceive of an independent world outside of his own personal wants and interests that
6: Yeah. He certainly conceives of no power over him, absolutely. He conceives of no
5: interests that supersede his own personal interests. Mm. I said it when he was elected. One of the things that has always troubled me about Donald Trump is that he's the only president who has never served in any – he's never served anyone else. He's never worked for anyone other than himself. He's never had to – he's never had a boss. He's never had a constituent. He's never been part of a chain of Mm. command. He has literally never had to subsume his own instincts to anybody else's will. And that's not a good, like the presidency is not the good time to do that for the first time, <laughs> right? Like the idea that you might have responsibilities to other human beings or is something you should be learning in the White House.
1: Governor Phil Scott has backed, uh, Republican governor, we should say, Phil Scott has today backed Pelosi's impeachment inquiry Will this see the Republican dam burst or is Phil Scott just an outlier um, who has been known to be critical of the president? What do you reckon, Emma?
6: I can't see it bursting yet. I mean, there's just no sense from Mitch McConnell or any of the Senate Republicans that they're going to shift because they are who needs to shift in order for any impeachment to actually happen. Um, Senate Republicans need to put party interest aside and put the national interest, uh, ahead. And I just don't think they have any will to do that at all. Um, and I, I suspect this will get strung out to the point where they'll go, oh, you can't do this in an election year. Um, and act like they're the high, high, high the holders of high values. I am shocked,
5: shocked to find that politics right. is happening in an election um, year.
6: And then you just you turn around and you say two words to them Merrick Garland uh, mm-hmm. but uh, a dagger yeah. to the heart but uh or oh, just Brett Kavanaugh just ugh. Ugh. um ugh. but I I don't see current eventually what is happening in current politics will go away and we will go back to sanity this ain't that year Um, And I don't think Mitch McConnell's that guy.
5: Mitch McConnell is a more poisonous participant in American politics than Donald Trump is because he is equally malign and far more competent um, and also far more strategic. He, He has a he has a plan where Donald Trump just flails around. I did think so. I I have very little hope that the Republicans will come to their senses in any in any near future. I was intrigued this week, however, that um, when a resolution a state of the Senate resolution was brought out, um, saying that Trump should release the whistleblower report, as was mandated by law. So like, Of course, they should. That Mitch McConnell allowed that resolution to go to the floor and allowed it to pass by unanimous consent. So, and which is not. So, I don't want to overblow that because that's that's Mitch McConnell asserting it's not him standing up to Democrats or for Democrats or against the president, but it is him asserting that Congress has a set separate, independent role. So, at least to that extent. I'm glad this week that you know, similar to the situation here in the UK, right? Parliament has asserted its power. I'm glad that at least to some extent, Congress has decided that its will cannot be flagrantly ignored. Um, it's it's not much, but it's a it's a flicker mm. of light in the darkness. Perhaps
6: I, I worry that you're being too generous. Um, I'm not being all um, generous. that generous. Flick- <laughs> <laughs> but even so, um, I I think that Mitch McConnell is is a better strategist than Trump. And so he's making sure that if there is a change of the presidency, then there aren't precedents set where the Senate has given up its roles. Correct.
5: That's what he's doing. He is asserting senatorial power. He's not standing up. He is,
6: but I don't think, I think he's doing that because he thinks he's got a better chance of a majority in the Senate than keeping his president in the Mm. White House. I don't think he's doing that because he believes in the power of the Senate. Well,
5: if that's true, then I'm encouraged that he believes that. And uh, <laughs> I, think he, I think he may have a point. Mm. I,
1: I've always thought that uh, Mitch McConnell primarily was a Republican and a Republican in the Senate. And for him, those two things uh, come first and second. And then there are, there are other con- kind of considerations which are way, way down the list. But um, let's just kind of start to to wrap up on this, because this is obviously is a rolling news story. And we could be in the time we've been recording. Maybe there's some some other bombshell or revelation, which is actually. uh, (laughs) Yeah,
5: quickly. Let's check the news.
1: Uh, (laughs) Can somebody switch on Twitter? You know, (laughs) um, (laughs) what were the key takeaways from the Maguire hearing. Did the Democrats focus a little bit too much on the process uh, behind uh, the whistleblower kind of complaint as opposed to delving into the allegations? Um, Karen, what do you reckon?
5: So I didn't follow the hearing too closely. My main takeaway from following it on Twitter, which is obviously not the best place (laughs) to get testimony. Mm -hmm. um, My impression is that Maguire is way out of his depth. Um, in the sense that, you know, he didn't expect to be in this position in the first place. He, he is a career military guy who is accustomed to following the chain of command. When confronted with the problem of being handed a whistleblower complaint that directly implicates his boss, he went to his boss with it. Now, and, you know, the, and the attorney general, by the way, Bill Barr also is, I think in serious trouble as well. Um, it should be said he, he himself is, has not recused himself, but is directly named in the complaint itself. So, um, there's some crazy stuff going on there. Um, so it, I felt like Maguire did not have good answers. Um, but I also kind of felt like he got stuck in a position that he was just not at all prepared to deal with. What it says about Democrat strategy. Who knows? I hope we do. I hope we are. I hope we are thinking really hard about how to run hearings effectively because yeah. I think we've been doing very well lately.
6: Oh, a million percent. That's exactly what I was just about to say. I mean, I know that it's sort of the, traditionally the way Senate hearings are done, but honestly, it's so unilluminating. You get someone speechifying for about two of their five minutes uh, and then not really necessarily unless they have been a lawyer or an advocate in their previous role knowing how to direct a really sharp question that will get withdraw the answer. Sometimes they're really good at it. AOC is very good at it. Kamala but Harris is pretty Kamala good Harris at it. Kamala Harris is good. She does have the previous law experience. Yeah, But I just think there aren't enough of them who are good at it, but an awful lot of them who think they are. But even if they were all excellent, just having five minutes at a time rather than giving over your time to one advocate – yeah. Because I just think an inappropriate way of trying to actually drill down into anything.
5: There was a recent Judiciary Committee hearing in which the Democrats on that committee assigned mm-hmm. all of their time to an advocate, to uh, a, an attorney called a uh, Burke, I think. And he was very effective. And it was really compelling to see how if you do it that way, then he can do basically a proper examination (sighs) and effectively a proper cross-examination. He can follow up on questions. He can demand answers to things that haven't been responded to properly. He can bring in evidence to build on his point. He can actually structure a case, which you can't do with 20 different senators in five minute slots. So I hope that we decide to go that way. But, But you know what,
1: though. Karen, you, you, you know what, you, you, you kind of can, right? And I think, and this is, I suppose it's a point to this show, it's ultimately towards compare and contrast. Parliamentary select committees are much um. better, it seems to me. I always get the impression that when it's uh, in, in the US, it's a case of grandstanding for those two minutes so you get your soundbite, you get your clip on the media. Whereas... Our select committees aren't publicised, aren't televised. Um, at least they're, they're not thrown on the the early evening yeah. news. They're just not. So actually, you get joined up thinking. It seems to me like those those politicians get in a cabal beforehand and say, "Well, I'm going to ask this. I'll go down this this road, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, where it seems to me that whether senators or congressmen, when they when they're in a, in the in, in a similar role just like freestyle it all the time it's a case of and also a lot of them can be incredibly mm. underprepared and so you get um when mark zuckerberg was in front of that uh uh committee he was asked so how do you make money from oh my Facebook? goodness that was excruciating you know, it's like, <laughs> we sell ads a, absolute <laughs> stunning absolute stunning yeah. ignorance. But uh, who wants to have a last word on this? Because as I said before, we, we need to be slightly be careful. Um, on a podcast. <laughs> so really quickly, they're, they're, I
5: was going to say, I, I agree with all that. I think basically on the committee question, there are there are fundamentally two purposes for a congressional hearing. One is information gathering to get the mm-hmm. information from experts that you need to legislate. And the other is a judicial process, right? So it's an, it's an oversight function. We are now at the extreme end of, an, of a judicial process. This is basically A trial that we're hosting, right? It's it's a grand jury investigation. Effectively, the way that impeachment works is, basically, this the the House impanels. Basically, they they set the charges out, and if they agree that the charges should be brought, then the hearing is in the Senate. So I think we need to treat it like a trial. We need to treat it with professionalism, and and that's why I would advocate for a strategy of nobody gets to grandstand. This is not your moment in the sun. Um, Pick one person to make your case. Exactly. We'll, like, we've, we'll, you know, we'll be fine on the fundraising. Right now, we've got to focus on managing this trial process in a way that um, d- don't worry about how it makes us look. Worry about what information we can get out for the American public.
3: Mm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: loss. the sheriff. Thank you. The yeah, Mr. Speaker, yeah,
4: yeah. I genuinely do not seek to stifle robust debate. But this evening, the Prime Minister has continually used pejorative language to describe an Act of Parliament passed by this House. And I'm sure that you would agree, Mr Speaker, that we should not resort to using offensive, dangerous or inflammatory language for legislation that we do not like. And we stand here. Mr Speaker, under the shield of our departed friend with many of us in this place subject to death threats and abuse every single day. And let me tell the Prime Minister that they often quote his words surrender act, betrayal, traitor and I for one am sick of it. We must moderate our language and it has to come from the Prime Minister first. Absolutely. So I would be interested in hearing his opinion. He should be absolutely sh- ashamed of himself.
0: I think, Mr. Speaker, I have to say, Mr. Speaker, I, 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 I have to say, Mr. Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. Because uh, the, the, the reality is this is a. This is a bill. This is a bill.
1: This is a bill. Order, 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 order. Here we go, folks. MPs have returned to Parliament a day after the Supreme Court ruled that the decision to suspend sittings for five weeks was unlawful. Emma, how do you describe yesterday in Parliament?
6: Oh, it was the worst day of Parliament I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not the only person who said that. Everybody said it. It was just just horrific. Um, the atmosphere was pure, pure poison. Um, the... Ginning up of that poison by the Prime Minister was, uh, and the Attorney General was pretty horrific. Um, you had female MPs close to tears begging Boris Johnson not to use the term Surrender Act, saying that it, you know, it really was causing the death threats, the violence threats that they've had in their constituencies and towards their staff. Um, today we've seen that someone was banging on the windows of Jess Phillips's office and shouting exactly these words. And yet with every answer to one of these women, he would repeat the phrase. And to the woman who we know has had credible death threats, Paula Sheriff, he, he called it, um, was it hogwash? Humbug. 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 that's it. Uh, it's just, hogwash. no, you're right. It was hum, pure humbug. He said, um, and it's i feel like this was the equivalent of that day that jacob Rees-Mogg just decided to lie down in parliament it's it's public school oxford debating society it's all a game treatment of what is bec- i mean what you know is what, a Emma, political I, I, crisis i slightly
1: disagree i slightly disagree For me, it was really marked that Johnson kept on saying surrender and betrayal. This is obviously – and that goes beyond the slightly polite confounds of the debating society, for me anyway, for me.
6: Oh, no, sorry. Okay, you're right. That wasn't what I meant. What I meant was just simply the it's all a game, win at any cost. No, they focus grouped the hell out of that. It's quite obvious. They think that those words will engender enough poison, as I said at the beginning of the, um, of the podcast, to get them over the electoral line, and that's all they care about. Um, what I meant was they are treating it as a game and not, not understanding that this has real impact on real lives.
1: And the MPs in this parliament know exactly the impact it's had because an MP was, was gunned down uh, at yeah. the start of the referendum uh, cycle. Uh, yeah. So, the fact that this man could speak in this way repeatedly is is utterly beyond the pale. And as and as you rightly said, you could see um, opposition MPs getting more and more infuriated by it and begging him to stop. I thought the position of Burko yesterday w- w- was very interesting because obviously he's got Erskine May and the rules and, and exactly how you uh, deport yourself. Um, in, in in the commons uh down pat and for him to and he didn't come down and, and condemn johnson but he mentioned May. So you can say surrender and you can say betrayal repeatedly but mm. he seemed to be trying to hold a line while saying actually you can use that i would have thought it was unparliamentary language but it actually wasn't
4: yeah i
6: i, I think he was trying within what the rules are yes. to kind of say dude, don't
1: yeah. do that yeah um Karen, why is the party of law and order trashing it? And um, give us your take and just very briefly on what the Supreme Court ruling actually said.
5: Well, I thought the Supreme Court ruling was absolutely fascinating and a blistering and extremely polite um <laughs> basically thrashing to the government it was amazing yeah. um i because I, I was i watched it live i happened to have the tv on at the office on it and because we knew exactly when the result would come in i saw first that it had been ruled justiciable which was the the first surprise that people weren't sure the supreme court would even rule on mm. it because they might have decided it was a political matter and outside of their purview they decided they could rule on it. In fact, I think they decided they had to rule on it because there was too much chaos. And then they just proceeded to destroy the government's position entirely. Um, And ultimately they said that, that they had a really nice paragraph in the judgment where they talked about the power of the executive ultimately derives entirely from parliament. They don't have any power outside of Mm. parliament. Now, of course that's a, it, the 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 fact that that is true has always been the case but it hasn't necessarily been evident because in the past that would have been obvious because a government controls a majority the fact that you can have an ongoing minority government without triggering an election is relatively new innovation in the system so i think the courts had to intervene to say what do we do in these circumstances and what they what they ruled was that the the executive cannot with no justification just disband Parliament. They can't prorogue or 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 send Parliament home and stop them from doing their work unless they have a reason. And it comes back. I thought it was very interesting because when the when the proroguing first happened, and the first um, I think the whichever of the courts, maybe the Scottish court, made a ruling. I remember reading somebody saying that it was very surprising that the government had not submitted a statement of what their decision-making was, why they had decided to do this, which was considered by the lawyer I was following very unusual. And the the Supreme Court justices came back to that. They said, you did not provide a rationale. You gave us no reason for why you're doing Mm -hmm. this. Therefore... There is no good reason because you didn't tell us if you'd given us a reason, you know, it, then then we could have accepted it. So um, basically, I, I felt on a number of levels, it, they seem to be saying the government was incompetent because they didn't choose to develop a rationale that the government was overstepping. Um, and then they, she gave him this wonderful smackdown at the end of the ruling as well, where she's like, the prime minister doesn't have to do anything um because we there's no action for you to take it's for parliament to reconvene itself but if for some reason you did have to do something i'm I'm relieved to note that your lawyer says you will follow the law i was like wow that is that is quite
6: devastating Mm. she was uh pulling no punches no indeed i mean it was just an extraordinary result wasn't it and i think i think the fact that it was unanimous was was probably deliberate they um because among that group there were probably leavers and remainers and they wanted to make it very clear that this wasn't about that it was about the rule of law and making sure that Mm. the Supreme Court rules on the rule of law and not on anything else
1: But isn't it just sickening though that we then have uh, the daily mail and the, and the right-wing press saying and then reese mugg's uh, sister even saying how many of these people voted to, to leave etc mm. that and then and we had the government basically saying that the parochial of parliament was nothing to do with brexit but then the tory press saying these this is anti-brexit technically speaking the two things have nothing at all in common or at least that's what the government had tried to have us to believe beforehand.
5: Well, the thing that I find fascinating about the whole thing is that because so if you, if you think about the, the rebel Alliance, right, the Remainer coalition in parliament, they took seriously the likelihood that they did not expect to get this ruling. They expected parliament to be shut down for the duration basically until no deal. Um, So they, they, they moved, they got the legislation passed that they needed to get passed to block no deal. There's kind of nothing else for them to do. So now Parliament's back in session and, and there isn't urgent legislation that needs passing. It's very good that they can now restore um, things like the Domestic Violence Act, which had been cancelled effectively because proroguing would have meant Parliament is disbanded and and all legislation goes back to square mm-hmm. one. But they don't actually have an urgent Brexit-related legislation to pass right now because they're expecting that their, their law will hold. So it's it's kind of interesting actually. So
1: it, it is a zombie parliament until uh, the deadline for no deal legislation, which is what, the October the nineteenth. So what what are they gonna do? What are they gonna do, Emma?
6: I oh, mean, I don't know is the honest answer. And I don't think anybody does. They <laughs> they're now just basically trolling Boris Johnson. Um, they voted not to allow him to have a recess for Tory Party conference.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: um which is almost done un- well it is unheard of um there would always have been a recess for that it just wouldn't have been controversial, but he messed up um there yeah. is talk of them trying to put a bill through next week to allow sixteen to eighteen year olds to vote and EU citizens to vote in any future referendum um which would be extraordinary um and might well change the balance of of the vote. Um, Emma, just do... whilst we're on
1: that point, just whilst, whilst we're on that point, why is it that in the Scottish referendum on independence, sixteen to eighteen year olds could vote, but then Cameron didn't uh, subsequently uh, ask for that in the UK uh, to leave uh, the European Union vote? I, I genuinely don't know the answer. It's not me. David Cameron's quite
6: complacent. He didn't want to set a UK-wide precedent of having 16- to 18-year-olds vote because in polling they tend to be more left-wing. Um, and he thought he could win it without them.
1: And it was purely the SNP pushing for it with the Scottish yep. poll. And that's the reason why it And through. the
6: Scottish has more devolved powers over things like that. So hmm. you wouldn't have that happen in Wales without the UK Parliament. But I think you can do it in Scotland when it was a Scottish-only advisory referendum.
1: Okay, so questions to the pair of you. Let's start with you, Karen. Um, Is Boris Johnson going to be, is is he going to go down in history as being the UK Prime Minister with the shortest tenure? Tell us yes or no, and then explain your answer.
5: I can't answer that question because I don't know what the current shortest tenure is. I think if he's out by the 30th of November, he will be the shortest tenured prime Mm. minister ever. That strikes me as pretty likely. So I guess I'm going to say yes. I mean, he'll certainly go down. It's hard to imagine he will go down as anything other than the worst prime minister of British history, just on the record. I mean, he he hasn't won a vote in parliament yet. He's had seven votes and he's lost every single one of them. That's that's not how the
1: job is supposed to work. So, yeah. Um, I, I, when
6: I, Theresa May lost four, mm. she
1: had to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, Boris Johnson is obviously going to play, and this is a, the, the final question, final question to you, Emma. Boris Johnson is obviously trying to play um, himself as uh, a man of the people against Parliament. When an election is called, we have to assume that he's still going to be the the tory leader that's going to be his card and that's the reason why he was using the language that he was yesterday the people have been betrayed i am Uh your champion i'm your stalwart is there any is, is there anything positive that can come out of a boris johnson tenure and let's hope that he gets booted out of office free, that we we'll have to look back at Boris Johnson in his time as Prime Minister and say, "That's something good that came out of this?
6: If he fails, it could lance the boil of this moment where people think that that kind of Trumpian populism is the way to electoral success. So the only positive thing I can see is if it doesn't work, then it may then put, a, put that back in the box, have it run mm. out of steam, Um, For the moment, because the one thing the Tory party has traditionally been very, very good at is uh, being a party of power, a party who understands power and a party who who puts having power first above ideology. Now, Brexit has absolutely broken them on that. Um, But there are enough traditional Tories, I think, just about left in the party to if give they're going to let Boris Johnson run the election he wants to run because they think it might get them power if it doesn't i think they may do a fairly <laughs> sharp right turn well, or hopefully not right turn <laughs> if you know I, what i mean
1: i'm i'm going to counter there there is something positive which is going to come out of the, this tenure and i i was uh chatting away whilst I was doing the notes of this show uh, to my cousin, who is currently over here. He's flown over from London to spend a week with me and is now currently walking around Lake Merritt in Oakland whilst we record the show. He was, he was of the view uh, that nothing good is going to come out of this and has come out of this. And I said, no, there has been one dollop of goodness which has come out. Austerity is finally over and has been bankrupted as a economic uh, model for at least the next 10 years, the very fact that right and left now have coalesced around the fact that there is a thing called left behind Britain and austerity has exacerbated that um, is a good thing. We have to look, we have to be conscious of that, is that the Labour Party can go into the next election and say we're going to spend money. Because the Tory party are saying exactly the same thing. So we if go,
6: I think, mm, go on. uh, Karen, you go ahead and then I'll
5: I'll come in. I was just going to say it will be if that analysis is true, it will be a bitter irony when Britain enters an austerity of necessity, the Mm. exact moment that it leaves an austerity of choice. Indeed.
1: Absolutely. I
6: couldn't have put it better myself. Absolutely. But it, Plus
1: it, also, but skewer, um,
4: if factorize. your electoral
6: strategy, mm-hmm. no, if, if, I don't think it does. I think if your electoral strategy is dependent on stoking the bitterness of the people who've been left behind, you don't solve their problems. So I i, I don't think the arms race in spending is that real. I mean, it's come out quite a lot that most of the figures is just, just reheated spending that was gonna happen anyway. But, it, but
1: in a way though, um, but in a way though Emma. I don't
6: see I don't know. let me finish Wifefield. Let me finish because okay. this is really important. You can say twenty thousand new police officers, as many much as you want, you can't actually train them anytime soon. But actually what they're looking to do with this Brexit is have Thatcherite Thatcherism on steroids. They want to piece Singapore in Europe. So what they want is to have the kind of economy that does not do anything to make sure that poorer communities aren't left behind. And the way that they do that is by turning this into a cultural war issue rather than an economic issue. And they say you are left behind because these metropolitan liberals have everything and they hate you, rather than our economy doesn't work for you and we need to make sure that whoever it is that's that's in charge is making sure that actually the power and the money and the redistribution is going to everybody. So I don't think we are looking at an end to an austerity, even if they've stopped talking about it in those terms, partly because of what Karen said, that we will definitely, if we leave the EU in any way, you know, soft Brexit gives us a soft recession, hard Brexit gives us a cliff-edge disaster – But either way, the people who'll get hurt aren't Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson. And they can use the language of populism as much as they want, but they will not introduce economically populist policies.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. Right. But where we disagree. Right. And I like the fact you got feisty with me. Right. I I, 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 I like a good (laughs) slap around the face. Let me speak. I thought I was was back in Parliament or something. I
6: was like, question time there for a moment.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. The, the, The model that Brexiteers want for the UK is for it to be Singapore on steroids, just outside, just offshore of the EU. Complete and utter agreement. The mistake. That they have made, and I, I also agree with your analysis that you can talk about twenty thousand new policemen and make, and it's just rejigging old figures, right? I'll, I'll agree with that. The fact of the matter is, your average voter doesn't understand that, and what they, what the the Johnson government has very clearly said is that austerity is over, so there isn't an intellectual argument against it. Uh, being fought in terms of austerity good, austerity bad. It's a case of it's over in terms of the next election. I agree they're probably cooking the books. Though I think it's really interesting that Savid Javid is fighting, the Treasury are fighting Johnson in terms of his uh, supposed spending pledges, saying, no, because Javid is actually a Thatcherite. However, intellectually and popularly, Popularly, I should put put my teeth in. My teeth are fighting with my tongue again. I really apologize, (laughs) right? Overtly, austerity is over. This makes things easier for Corbyn for the left going forward because the right cannot say "We, we need more of this. That what they're actually doing with the figures is another thing, but the rhetoric and the battleground the next next election in terms of trying to rebalance the British economy, better infrastructure spending outside of the South East, etc. Cetera, etc. That argument's actually been won. Is my point. And on that point
6: I, I think it's been sidelined, but I mean I do take your I, I take your point maybe in the longer term. I think the next election's not mm. going to be about that.
1: Right. I wanted to have the last word And I will have the last word. It's my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we're going to move on to our takeaways of the last seven days. Karen, I was going to call you a new person, but you're actually not. You're a friend of the podcast. You've been um,
5: I'm quite an old person, really.
1: (laughs) Newish to us. Newish to us. So you're going to go last. I'm going to give you time to think if you haven't thought before. Uh, But, you know, Emma is always really good with her takeaway. So let's go to Emma. First off, what's your takeaway of the last seven days?
6: Oh, God. Well, mostly I spent the last seven days drunk because I was at party conference. With Michael Goat. It's the only way to get through it. Uh, no, well... <laughs> no he wasn't at the Labour Party conference. He was pissed in Parliament by the <laughs> looks of things. <laughs> the, the bars there are subsidised, so, you know, that's mm-hmm. a great, great thing. What I've been... Uh, this is going to sound really soppy, but it, this wasn't my most favourite conference. Um, the atmosphere wasn't great. What I did get through was... with lovely friends who I've known for a long time across the, I say across the political spectrum, but across the spectrum of the Labour Party which is broad enough um, just being there for each other when it's needed and politics feels so febrile and rotten and horrible and such a nasty place to be at the moment that actually that's really important and I know this sounds a bit like a Jerry Springer last words bit but I think we forget. It's so easy when everything is so confrontational to forget to actually do the other side and hug your friends close and be there for them. Um, And that's what the last few days have really given me.
1: i tell you what, there's going to... There's going to be some violin music uh, <laughs> played behind that one, this. Right,
4: <laughs> <laughs> and this was brought to you by Aaron Sockett.
1: <laughs> Here's my takeaway. And I have mentioned this on um, another one of my podcasts that I do. So it's a Dum-de-Dum, The Archer's Show. And, and the feedback has been some, somewhat interesting um, and somewhat supportive, even with people that are into this art form. But I went to the opera uh, last week. I spent an inordinate amount of money on to offer tickets to see Romeo and Juliet. And I don't know how really and truthfully that artwork, that art form, sorry, stands up in 2019. Um, I'm not not a, uh, a massive fan of musicals, but I've been to a few. And invariably, I say I'm not a fan of musicals because I'm some heterosexual male. And that's just a bit odd. People like, you know, <laughs> singing and dancing, whatever. But whenever I go to one, I always, I always end up having a good time. Go, oh, Stomp was pretty good. Or, oh, you know, I, I, I end up enjoying myself, even though I go along, you know, with a harump as an attitude. I saw it was, it was two hours, uh, 45 minutes. And I, I managed to get a C in English literature. But I never actually did Romeo and Juliet. But of course, we know the basic outlines of the of the story. And I said to the person that I went with, "I love movies. We all love movies. If I sat down and watched a movie in a foreign language without the subtitles on for an hour, two hours, and then went bravo at the end and clapped my hand, you go, you pretentious idiot. You have you have not understood a word of that, or or at least the nuance has been lost. Even if you understand the understood the general gist of." the performance it was beautifully shot uh beautifully staged sorry um but in terms of real emoting feeling that this was a young teenage couple no um romeo wasn't an amazing singer he was pretty good don't get me wrong he could sing better than me But I felt it was a technical (laughs) exercise in running vocal scales. Oh, 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 go up and down and up and down. And it wasn't lost on me that at the end that death scene, when Romeo walks into the vault and is, oh, she is so cold, but she looks so beautiful and alive, but she's dead type of thing. by the time he takes his poison and drops down, and then she literally leaps up. I am alive. The po- it has worked. There were sniggers. There were sniggers in 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 that in that opera house. Now, to my surprise, there were a thing called uh, I call them subtitles, but they're called surtitles. I did not know this was a thing that you can actually follow. Though they were singing in French, not Italian, uh, the English translation. So that was a pleasant surprise. So hmm. I could actually follow. You know things and stuff um but it was very flat and i just for me walking out of there i said what makes this enjoyable and it's all the other elements it's the fact that you're spending a fuck ton of money so you have to enjoy it (gasps) invariably you get dressed up So you are going to enjoy it because you put your best clothes on. Um, Everything was expensive in terms of uh, food and drink. So, you know, that shows you how special it was because water was $10. $10. And then the tellers who are all volunteers were lovely old folk, obviously all retired, and they were just lovely and smiley. And you went to a beautiful building and you only go... Or your average person probably goes to the opera, what, what, once a lifetime, maybe two or three times a lifetime, your average person, I'm not talking about, you know, your lovers and stuff. So you go, you know what, I've had an experience, but I had to wrap, I had to throw into this experience, all these other elements, the cost, the rarity of going to see something like this to go, I've had an experience. I do not know how enjoyable that experience actually truly was was my takeaway and normally takeaways are supposed to be positive so I'm really sorry for you know uh for mine being a, a little bit of a Debbie Downer but I don't know I don't know about the opera <laughs> um
6: it's interesting I um I, can I, did I mention this last time um did I talk about my experience in Poland I can't you, remember you did
1: talk about Poland you went to Krakow
6: I did. Well, no, because when you were saying about how not understanding it leaves a nuance, because I had that completely different experience where it it opened up nuances to me that I probably miss normally because I'm so busy on the words. Mm.
1: Now you see, like... But that was not opera. (laughs) (laughs) What was that, just a straight play? Uh,
6: It was a very surrealist play.
1: But I think then there's other things going on. If it, if it's surrealist, then you'll, you've got visual dissonance, haven't you? And the fact that, you know, it's going to be, things aren't continuous, it's going to be incongruous, etc. Et so I can, that makes much more sense to me. But somebody or a group of people singing in a foreign language for two hours...
5: I think I think you make a really interesting point, Royfeld. Actually, because it, it it occurs to me that part of the problem with opera is that we no longer share the language the sort of vocabulary of how to enjoy the art form. I'm thinking about, you know, a TV sitcom, mm. right? Is is very constructed and artificial in its own way, right? It has its tropes and its expectations. You know, the format. You know, there's going to be sort of three cameras. You know, you know how to, and so we're very easily able to access a TV sitcom. But if it, if you were not accustomed to it, it would it would feel very alien. And I think opera for most people is now alienated because the kind of the artificial construction of the art form is no longer familiar to us it feels quite strange and alien and for some people that's something they welcome as a sense of like oh this is something surprising and different but i think you're absolutely right that for most people it's it's extra work to get past that and we don't normally find that pleasurable um so yeah i think it's fair
1: and also the conceit is that you need to have read and understood and digested the canons of western literary culture That's the other massive conceit that, oh, well, of course you've read, uh, you know what Carmen is all about. Of course you know what blah, blah, blah is is all about. So there there is that utter level of, uh, you know, cultural elitism, which you need to take into the performance. You can't go to it cold. You literally cannot go to it cold and and find it an enjoyable experience, you know. But as I said, you know, I, I went.
5: But I think, you know, 100 years from now, people will look at our... Our popular culture productions, and they'll see how much of it relied upon knowing in jokes that we now think are tropes. You know exactly the the kind of pop culture references that are that are scattered throughout our 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 art. The kind of political references, the sly innuendos, will be completely completely incomprehensible to future generations, and they'll have to kind of study it to understand it. I I love the idea of like a future generation trying to figure out how to how to read The Office, you know, or something like that.
1: <laughs> but, but, but you know what? That, that's complete. That's completely and utterly correct, right? But if we if you if we transported ourselves back to ancient Rome, and yeah. we said we wanted to see a popular play of the time, we wouldn't get all of those references. But this is high art. This is supposed to be something for the ages.
6: Oh no, I there I think you're wrong because I don't think opera was invented to be high no, art. No, but it is now. Uh, we think of it as that now. It is now, but that but if we were going yeah. back to the day that Donizetti or whoever was writing that opera, mm. it wouldn't necessarily be high art. So yeah. it you shouldn't treat it as if it was written to be that.
5: Well, it's like jazz, isn't it? I mean, jazz was very much the people's music. It was a very kind of uh it was meant to it was never meant to be a high art form, but now you only ever see jazz in kind of very ritzy jazz clubs right and it's mm. a very elite audience that goes to it that happened really quickly in musical terms um I, opera is i think a bit the same it you know it, it it certainly did have kind of royal stamp of approval but it wasn't always that there were also musical musicals that were writing i mean you know mozart's Ma- the magic flute was the first performed in a very kind of musical kind of knees upper type of environment
1: it worked both ways Mm. Crumbs. Anyway, I, I was just supposed to just mention this for a, a minute and not, you know, spark a whole discussion. <laughs> now and now we've got We need a, deep deep. Yeah, crisis. I feel <laughs> a whole I, other
5: podcast <laughs> for
1: this. <laughs> you know, I feel that intellectually I'm up against two heavyweights here and I have to, like, you know, gracefully step back. But there is absolutely no way, even though opera might have started off as being a thing of the people, I have to take, take both of your words uh, for it on that. All right? I don't know is what is what i'm very clearly saying but it's not popular now is my point and 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 that's it really and i didn't have a bad time i'm just saying i didn't know if i enjoyed it (laughs) you know
5: if you gave me personally the choice of going to an opera and a good musical i would also choose a musical anytime
6: depends on the musical depends on the opera there you go. <laughs> nice middle ground for you.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, I'm with our American friend I'd on rather this.
6: see I... Hamilton than Deflade mouse. But Speaking on the of... other <laughs> My uh, shall I do my take of the week? Yes, yes. Go. Or my uh, so
5: uh, it's Hamilton, <laughs> not, not the musical, um, because I have a I have a young child and so I don't get out much. I have a young child and a busy job and a podcast to to to, to cope with. Um, but I'm reading a book right now. Um, I'm in the middle of reading the the Hamilton biography that the musical Hamilton was based upon. And I've, you know, it's one of those things I always thought, oh, I should get around to reading that. That sounds really interesting. And, you know, the story is Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton, basically apparently read the book on holiday and then was just blown away by it and was like, there's so much in this. So I'm reading it and I'm like, yeah, I totally get that because the story of Alexander Hamilton is everything, like everything is in it. I mean, the man lived a life. He grew up in the most... (laughs) extraordinary circumstances you know in crippling you know incredible very, poverty. very horrible poverty you know uh, you know abandoned by his father watched almost everyone he knew die right in front of his eyes and you know there was a hurricane and all this stuff and then he becomes one of the great geniuses of the American system you know he's this just absolute soldier philosopher poet like everything going on And um, But it's just so interesting to me to put myself back in the the place of the founding of the American Republic. You know, it's like Emma, I'm going to get a little bit soppy now, but, you know, I I am a patriotic person who has been finding it hard lately to feel love for my country. And uh, (laughs) there's something kind of nice about going back to the start and saying, okay, you know what? it's always been pretty messed up. Like there's always been crazy stuff happening and there's always been these debates and there's always been these arguments and we built something out of it. You know, we somehow pulled it all together and we made it work. And, um, but it's fascinating how many of the things we fight about now, we fought about on the first day, right? Like before the country was formed, <laughs> the f- in the formation of the country, in the Constitution, in the debates after the Constitution, in the first presidential election, you know, f- debates about executive power, debates about the role of, of, of Black people in the country, debates about... Um, you know, the financial system and how it powerful the banks should be. It's amazing. Uh, it, it, it's what, all there.
6: What stuns me, though, like slightly just as a sideline, is watching and being a, you know, a very sort of lefty person going to a musical, and I've been three times now, I love it to bits, celebrating was basically the father of American capitalism. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when I think about this a little more deeply <laughs> – well, I
5: mean, you could also—I mean, you could also argue he's the American, the father of American socialism, because he established a role for the federal government mm. in in the financial system. That I is mean, true. Capitalism could have flourished in a more unconstrained way mm. if Hamilton if had, had, had lost that battle, yeah.
1: and Jefferson exactly. had, had his way. Yeah, yeah, But, yeah. but, he, but he, here's the thing. He, here's a question, right? And maybe we've set a precedent now. You yeah, know, there is an unwritten constitution to Mid-Atlantic that basically goes like this. Takeaways of the week, uh, somebody says them, and then you just hum and ha for about 30 seconds, and then we move on to the next one. And we've broken that precedent <laughs> uh, in this show by actually having a full-on discussion and debate about it, from at least two perspectives of two of the takeaways. Uh, as a student of history, and as somebody who has a podcast called 10 American Presidents, and uh, I- I've done radio shows Uh, about my um, admiration of your American experiment, uh, Karen. Um, Don't we lionize? Don't Americans lionize? Number one, the revolution way too much and its founding fathers. And ultimately, aren't they going to be um, the millstone around structural reform which is going to be needed in, to the American public going forward? That you look at these supposed gods who created uh, the republic and and see them as not without flaws, but see them as almost Superman. The way you describe Hamilton, um, is it, for me is kind of somewhat classic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, but the late 18th century was a weird time because you had, whether it was, Napoleon didn't grow up in grinding poverty, but they were a relatively down-at-heel uh, uh, family in Corsica. You know, there's, it, there's something about the late 18th century, early 19th century, where men, and it's very, always men, could pull mm-hmm. themselves up by their by their bootstraps and have a little bit of hootspur about them and find themselves in extraordinary circumstances doing extraordinary things. You know, it's 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 harder to to have to look at a life like that now. Harder, not impossible, but harder. So I put it to well, you. See,
5: I'd, I I I slightly dispute. I, I would I own I yes but uh-huh. the so thing that fascinates me, me about Haiti is
1: a slave who yeah. ends up kicking yeah. out the French and being uh, the captain of, uh, mm. of the only country in the world that has uh, thrown itself thrown off the shackles of, of slavery and he ends up uh, being a general, then running that country and then imprisoned by Napoleon Bonaparte. There's something about that period in history. It's a cracking story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Simon Bolivia, you know, there's all, there's, yeah. it, there's something about that period. I just think, you know what? Yes, Hamilton was pretty clever, but you Americans bang on about these people all the time yeah. and whatever. And your Harriet Tubmans and your others if that come later on hardly get a look in.
5: Well, I think... So, two things. Mm -hmm. You're totally right. We're silly about our founding fathers. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not previously... Before the musical, I had not paid any attention to Alexander Hamilton whatsoever. Mm -hmm. What's really coming through to me in reading this book, and which, you know, it's one of those, like, well duh moments, but you sort of suddenly go, oh, right, is that he's very much the exception, right? That he is... He is an upstart surrounded by a bunch of other founding fathers who are, to all intents and purposes, aristocracy.
1: um, From from the uh, from the musical, an upstart. What was it? Bastard How does it basted basted of a bastard orphan of a whore
6: and a <laughs> in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean? the <laughs> no, Caribbean by providence. <laughs> no, I'm by provident, t- impoverished. Grow up to be a anyway, hero and a scholar. Point, hero and a scholar, oh my god. <laughs> really good. Ever,
5: $10, $10, $10 <laughs> founding father. <laughs> <laughs> without a father. <laughs> oh dear.
1: That's impressive. I've listened to this way too much. That was impressive.
5: But my point is... What really came home to me reading this book is how the, my mental image of my country, my dreams, like the 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 myth that we are fed with our mother's milk, of what America is, right? Mm-hmm. is that is what you just described. It's that you know you can come from anywhere and make yourself. That was not the case. It was certainly not the case in terms of the founding fathers other than Hamilton. They were wealthy landowners whose fathers had been wealthy landowners, whose fathers had been wealthy landowners for the most part. You know, Washington, Jefferson, um, Madison. These people were elite privileged class who were dabbling in political philosophy as a hobby. It was like they hosted a podcast, right? (laughs) 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 They were the podcasters of their day. They were like, oh, this would be fun. I've got some free time. Maybe I'll start a country. That's not Hamilton. He was doing it out of pure self-will because he had nothing else.
4: Mm.
5: So, like, yeah, so I was just, but I think that's the thing. I was really struck by um, the myth we tell about ourselves that our founding fathers is not accurate. But in this particular case, that one person, it was true. And I was like, oh, he, he is the best exemplar. And yet, until recently, um, undiscovered. And that's the other thing that came through. It was like, he was so controversial and so despised in his time and there were all these things swirling around him. And I just thought, again, it's like, you know the pamphlets and the um the the publishing industry it's like the internet today right it's like facebook everything just feels so fresh and on the one hand it feels kind of exciting because it's like well you know it, it, it there, there, there's you know it's fresh and it's modern on the other hand it's just like god we never learn we never seem to move on <laughs> we never get past these things yeah. we're still fighting about the same stuff
1: yeah. uh, uh, i mean just, yes aren't we just
6: these Emma, history books Emma, are often written Emma, to do that, though, aren't they? Sorry, Emma, am I carrying it on?
1: to close the show.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, Karen, why don't you go first? Tell us where people can find you on social media and tell us about your podcast and what you're up to this week
5: so i am the host of primarily 2020 it is a podcast about the politics policies and personalities of the 2020 democratic primary it's by democrats for democrats but you can listen in if you're uh, if you're not a democrat but a democratic sympathizer come and join me primarily 2020 you can find it on uh, any most podcast players of your choice um and you can also find me on twitter i'm at karen jr that's karen with an i
1: k-a-r-i-n-j-r same thing to you emma
6: uh, yeah I will be on findable on Karen's podcast this week <laughs> so we can do this all <laughs> again my special guest um, and I'm also I'm on Twitter as Emma Burnell underscore
1: and folks I've been threatening to do this for some time but we now have a new home on Facebook quite simply if you ty- type in marketplace of the mind the Agora podcast network which is a, the network that I founded um, and I'm proud to be a part of has um a facebook group where you can um pose political questions and uh, and basically you can um see what questions you can actually pose and put to us via SpeakPipe. so it's a marketplace of the mind if you are on facebook type that in and join in with um informed intelligent urbane um citizens from around the world talking about uh, politics not necessarily from a left to center perspective but talking about stuff um don't forget this show now is a uh, is absolutely courting your feedback you can go on to midatlanticshow.com over on the right hand side it says speak pipe hit that tab it works from your mobile phone or from your laptop then just connects to your microphone on said device and you've got two minutes to wildly agree with everything i said about opera wildly disagree uh with karen's analysis of the importance of hamilton or whatever (laughs) you want or um say to emma emma you weren't bad on the show uh last time go (laughs) on to speak by and give us your feedback um I think this has been uh, somewhat of a, a, of a great show. It's really good to have you, uh, Karen. You're going to have to come on again. Anytime, Roefield.
5: Well, not literally anytime. <laughs> I have a schedule, but I'll work <laughs> but, but, you in.
1: <laughs> but I, but I, I, do like, I do like the fact that, you know, when you say anytime, you know, the, then you corrected yourself. Not when the little one needs a new book. Uh, to read. You know, don't be getting on <laughs> your podcast then. Uh, folks, of course, uh, we're MidAtlanticShow.com on that's the website. Don't bother following us on Twitter because I never post anything there. But I can be found at Royfield, where quite often I talk about the archers, actually, because I'm that type of guy. See you all again in approximately 14 days' time for more chat discussion on what makes America the way it is and Britain the thing that we all know and love. Toodaloo. Bye bye. Bastard, orphan son of a whore and a scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the caribbean by providence poverty and squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar
3: the ten dollar founded father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14 they placed him in charge of a trading charter
0: my name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait, just you wait.
2: When he was ten, his father split, full of it, dead, ridden. Two years later,
0: see Alex and his mother bed, ridden, half dead, sitting in their own sick, the scent thick. And Alex got better, but his mother went. Moving with a cousin, a cousin, committed suicide Left him with nothing but ruined up something new inside a voice Saying, Alex, you gotta fend for yourself He started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf if There would have been nothing left to do for someone less astute He would have been dead or destitute without a cent or restitution Started working, working for his late mother's landlord Trading sugarcane and rum and all the things he can't afford to stand I died for him. Me, me, I trusted him. Me, I loved him. And me, I'm the damn fool that shot him. There's a million things I haven't done, but just too late. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton.
2: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.